Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley bringing you Politics Without the Boring Bits Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, an absolute legend on a Friday. It is Sir Trevor McDonald. We talk about an extraordinary career in journalism which took him from the Troubles in Northern Ireland to Tiswas and beyond. An amazing interview with a man who's had an extraordinary career. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learn that James Cleverley and the Labour MP Alex Cunningham are still arguing about whether the Home Secretary called a town or its MP... But I will make it absolutely clear, Madam Deputy Speaker, for the avoidance of doubt, with no ambiguity, I did not, would not... Then what are you calling me, sir? We learned that Yvette Cooper is learning from James Cleverley in becoming really potty-mouthed. Well, the problem seems to be that he thinks his Rwanda policy is batshit. That's driven his backbenchers apeshit, and now his whole party is in deep shambles that we have seen before us today. We learned that after Peter Mandelson was singing on how to win an election... This was not his first foray into showbiz. Can I just point out that when I was in primary school, I sang the solo of In the Bleak Midwinter on a Decca recording of Christmas carols by the Hampstead Garden Suburb Primary School Choir. We learn that Gillian Keegan isn't quite sure what the marbles are called. Elgin Marbles. We learn that Giles Cohen's got a theory about Keir Starmer. Keir's got this massive head, which you feel that you could take the top off and lots of rishis would climb out of it. We learn that one thing that isn't in Keir Starmer's head is good jokes. An ancient relic that only a tiny minority of the British public have any interest in. Mr Speaker, that's enough about the Tory party. (laughs) Uh, We learn that they don't lock the door when recording the Channel 4 weather. Cold night, a widespread frost, temperatures below freezing and a risk of a few somebody's just opened the door. We learn that DUP Jim, MP Jim Shannon is keeping things totally in perspective. Great squares are the Hamas of, of, of the squirrel world. And that is what we learned this week. Right now, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column on Times Radio. Ah, we say a very good morning to India Knight. Hello, India. Morning, Matt. Morning, James. And having a great big stretch, James Marriott's here. Limbering up. How are you? Good morning, yeah. Uh, Well stretched. Supple. Supple. Ready to broadcast. (laughs) Supple. Can you touch your toes? No, I absolutely can't. I'm in fact extremely unsupple. I can barely touch my knees. Wow. Want something to investigate on another occasion. Yeah, I'm not sure how that... That's probably not going to make great radio, is it? Well, I don't know. I did yoga in here with Ben Bradshaw. Did Yo- you? Yoga on the radio, yeah. Okay, well, maybe we should do that. Maybe that's a Christmas thing. Yeah. Get- well, I'm still waiting for my promised columnist's panel, Tenpin Bowling, that never materialised. 
So we can add yo- columnist yoga to the. Maybe we should be list. doing that instead of the uh, the columnist Christmas dinner that we're having. Maybe we can. Well, go... I was just ignoring me. I've been broadcasting it for years. Can we now. go bowling before the dinner? Yeah, or after. Why don't we do that? I yeah, I'm up for bowling. Yeah, perfect. Very good. Um, right, should we do, should, are we still on the radio? Um, <laughs> let's talk about Omid Scobie. I mean, obviously you'll hate it, but we must talk about it. Uh, the royal biographer who has refused to apologise over the translation error in his book Endgame after the Dutch translation identified uh, two royals at the centre of a racism, racism row. Uh, this is him on Newsnight on BBC Two last night. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about it because the English version of the book, the only one I know, the version that I signed off on, that is the book that is out there today. That's the book that has no names in it. And I make it very clear because ultimately, it, to write the names, it's a show-and-tell situation. There's no ability to show, so there was never an attempt to name what do you think is going on here, India? Is this just incredible uh, PR manoeuvring by a man flogging another book about Meghan and Harry? Yes, he is a self-publicist of incredible and singular genius. First of all, I don't believe any of this. First of all, the t- what happens when you write a book is you you work on it with the editor, you get a clean set of proofs that you approve to go to the typesetter. Then the typesetter typesets the copy, then the copy gets printed. It is inconceivable that a typesetter would whack in a couple of names that weren't there before. That's just not a thing that happens. It's not possible. So that's point number one. So this, uh, But of course, you know, it makes headlines and it gets you interviews and you go everywhere and you say, no idea how that happened. I mean, it's literally not a thing that happens. The other thing is, don't necessarily believe anything he says i don't i don't we do we know that he's actually friends with them you know he's 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 let it known that he certainly with his first book was a mouthpiece for megan and i think to a lesser extent harry is that true does he still have her ear is this what he's been told by her slash them we just don't know i think he's just making it all up and i think he's amazing at publicising his own work. I mean, like, world-class. Hats off. I mean, obviously, but I sure, think it's all nonsense. I'm sure if he was here, he would insist he didn't make it all up. But I take your point about but, uh, the number of proofs I went through with my book. Yeah. The idea that at some point someone would just name someone as being Dropping a racist. a random but, racism accusation. Yeah, just by some, yeah it yeah. just doesn't happen. It's not a thing. Yeah. I think anybody who knows how nervous publishers are and how yeah how, how much your book is reread, and especially a book like that, will have so many lawyers all over it, mm. reading and rereading it. It does beg a belief a bit. I have to say the legal notes I had on my book were extraordinary, uh, including the suggestion that repeating a story that I'd already written before, that Vince, C- that somebody, uh, Vince Cable's wife took photos of him in the bath, just suggesting that might be an invasion of his privacy, not even printing the photos. So, the you know, actually, we ended up, it was fine. But, like, the level of legal yeah, query, exactly. yeah. where is this from, and attribution, and, uh, um, was uh, John Major joking about how he was popping pills after having his teeth out, all of that sort of stuff. The level of scrutiny. Yeah, over stuff that is obvi- of, 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 often quite banal yeah, and the belt wouldn't be interesting. Yeah, the belt Although braces. you do have to now go on Piers Morgan to deny that you said it was Vince Cable having his photograph taken <laughs> in the bath. That's what you should be doing if you're a real master of publicity. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what you've done. You've got, yeah, you've got Vince Cable to, to stoke a row about how he's never had <laughs> That would a benefit bath. both of you. Yeah, It'd be yeah, a yeah. great confected rivalry. Do, do you think the... the the Harry and Meghan industry is the air's going out of it a little bit. Yeah, James. I think it, I, I think it's t- I think it's totally boring, and I also think if Omid Scooby is friends with um, Harry and Meghan as he, as he claims to be, then he's now using them. They're not using him. None of this, I think, reflects yeah. well on them. They, you know, I think there was a kind of there's a bit of public sympathy for them that's been depleting ever since Spare was a kind of real blow to their popularity. And I mean, they keep hitting. Whenever you look at the polling of their sort of popularity. It's sort of endlessly hitting new lows. And, you know, Omid Scobie's doing very well out of it. But this, I think, is more damaging to Harry and Meghan than anybody else because people are just sick of them and it just looks, you know, petulant and weird now. Yeah, it also looks like they're just whining and whining and whining and whining and have got nothing else to contribute other than the same whine on the same topic. And I agree with James, it does them a terrible disservice. And if they had any gumption, I always think they're, 
they're really badly advised PR-wise, but if they had any gumption, they would enjoy their lovely life in California and just lie low and be quiet because nobody's interested anymore and I don't think anybody cares anymore either, which is a shame, but, you know, there we are. If I'm just looking at a good barometer of these things, the, um, I'm just looking at Mail Online. Uh, their top story is, in fact, right across the top is uh, Dignity in the Face of Scobie's Poison Pen. <laughs> Uh, which is apparently, I love this. Brilliant, I love a male headline. Yeah, yeah. William and Kate get a standing ovation as they arrive at the Royal Variety Show, uh, while the Royals' tormentor-in-chief shamelessly continues to twist the knife. It's the banner across the top. It's got one comment on it. Uh, and you have to scroll down quite a long way before you get to the sort of the, the full slate of, uh, of Howard and Meghan, uh, you know, material. And... It's not that. It's not, it doesn't look like it's flying. Put it that way. In the no, way I mean, that, comp- yeah, earlier this year with spare, that was just absolutely unavoidable. You couldn't move without walking yeah. to a copy mm-hmm. of that book or a new story about that book. Um, so maybe it is. Uh, I also, yeah, I love a royal. Um, I remember one. Was it? I think Prince Philip was in hospital, and they had a photo of the Queen, and it was basically yeah, the, the, the the headline in the mail was something like the smile that says. He's on the mend or something. And it's just, you know, just the smile that said, because obviously the Queen never said anything. The number of times they used the smile that says. Yeah, well, all the body language experts who I think have actually been out for William and Kate this time, haven't they? I think yeah, they yeah, all yeah. had some stuff about Kate's wounded body language or something. Yeah. But uh, it's all fiction, isn't it? So much of what we think we know about the royals is just fiction. It's it's confected from facial expressions or bodily positions or a brooch or the shoes somebody's wearing or how they've done their hair. You know, it's all sort of, it's all invented. It's all their sort of blank slates for people to project whatever they want to project onto them and project whatever interpretation they want to make. So the idea that these are sort of hard facts and that they're really telling us how they feel by the way they've pinned their hair up. It's just, it's all just nonsense. I mean, it's entertaining, but it's nonsense. Um, <laughs> I've just looked up the Express. Uh, when Is this when Harry and Meghan had their baby? Or they announced they were having a baby. And uh, the Express went for the smile that says it all. Great, says, but what does it actually I say? I don't know. Very happy, little. Smiley. I'm happy and smiley. Um, yeah, anyway, there's probably enough enough, enough, um, enough publicity for them. Uh, best of luck to you if you're going to plough through it all. Maybe maybe you want something different for Christmas. Now, should we talk about Christmas gifts? So a couple of weeks ago, you weren't here, India. Um, so in lieu of you being here, I read out some of your, your excellent sub-stack. And um, we were talking on the show about how you'd recommended some biscuits from Fortnum and Mason's that cost £20. Can you remember what they were? The Chobba-Lobba-Dobba-Dos or something they were called? Oh, yeah, with toffee in them. Yeah. Um, Tophilosaurus or exactly something. Exactly right. Tophilosis. Uh, <laughs> something like that. Colossi of toffee. Anyway. Yes, anyway. But the, we, basically we were discussing, is £20 too much to spend on a packet of biscuits? Yeah, of course. It's much, much, <laughs> a crazy amount to spend on but but this is a present. You're wrapping up the 20... So 20 quid is not a huge amount to spend on a present. Although, actually, on my Substack, I've got I've done a whole list of non-food, 100 presents under £100. Most of them are under 50 quid. 20 quid is not a huge amount to spend on somebody's Christmas present. And those Fortnum's biscuits, A, are colossi of toffee, and B, are in a beautiful tin. But- so, you know, I wasn't... I'm not suggesting that if you come onto my house, we've got... Fortnum's tins of biscuits or yeah, just kitchen. just on a Tuesday, yeah, just on a Tuesday. But on Christmas Day, if there is somebody you want to spend twenty quid on, then I'm suggesting that a tin of a very beautiful tin of toffee biscuits from Fortnum's is quite nice. Be quite nice to receive. Well, David's but just, on my other list. David's just been in touch food. saying I've just ordered some chocolosis biscuits from the Fortnum's. They're delicious and only nineteen ninety five in a beautiful tube. There you go. But on my other Christmas gift yes. list, I've suggested this giant cardboard box, like catering-sized box of, um, of like, chocolate hobnobs and Mars bars, which is seventeen ninety nine <gasps> or something for, like, a monstrous amount. So, you know, you could do that instead. Now, here's the thing, because um, we've been do- we've, we've, this week we drew our names for our Team Secret Santa. What's an acceptable amount of money to be the cap on a Secret Santa? Because, you, like you said, you can't get that. Well, I think we've, we've settled on £10. You can't, you can't buy much for £10, James. No, and I'm, my problem with India's biscuits is that I'm not sure anybody would assume that a tin of biscuits, however lovely, cost £20. 
So you're basically spending 20 quid to look like you spent less. It's also exactly the kind of thing that looks like you buy in Fortman and in, in TK Maxx like a week before <laughs> Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Those weird, ex- over, yeah. over, uh, realistic, those like weird, overcomplicated biscuits that you get from the shelf at TK Maxx. And yeah. they're like still weird. They're still like six ninety nine or something, but they used to be 20 quid in Fortman Mason. And I what kind of... What is your acceptable biscuit limit, James? I actually, I don't often buy biscuits. I wouldn't go... I, I wouldn't have imagined that I'd ever go for a fiver, but uh, I mean, maybe yeah, but I'm... not for Christmas. You're not going to give your mum a packet of McVitie's Dunkers. <laughs> <laughs> have we maybe finally found... The Friday, the Friday columnist panel is normally the most sedate in an outbreak of cosy consent. We finally found the thing that can drive the a rift between you. me and India. <laughs> you know, we're going to stop talking to each other. You're going to have to mediate wars. between us. What do you think, India? What's the right amount for an office secret Santa? It's quite difficult, isn't it? I think like 50, you're not, you, you should, 15, 15, 15, 20. 15 to 20. You can get things for tenner, but you have to really rootle around. Exactly, and you don't want it to look like, because the trouble is you're basically going to end up with something rubbish for £10 these yeah. days, thanks to inflation. Um, maybe maybe some, some, some McVitie's Dunkers. <laughs> I think I might have made Dunkers up. They should exist. But, well, it's basically what you call a biscuit, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Right, James, let's talk about your column. Uh, you wrote that fiction is in the doldrums because the truth of today's hectic world is you couldn't make it up. Reality is more interesting than fiction. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you? Yeah, this is actually one of my favourite... Um... Is this not always the case? So, I know it's, it, sounds, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but this is one of my favourite theories about the internet age, a book called Reality Hunger by David Shields, which was written in 2010. It's one of those weird books written just when the internet was getting going that actually has been very prescient about things. And what he points out is that he was noticing this kind of big decline in stuff like traditional TV drama, the rise of reality TV, the decline in traditional fiction, the rise of memoir, um, the rise of people on social media kind of, you know, sharing the reality of their lives, confessing their lives, influences, kind of turning their whole lives into content. And he was onto this, I think, really interesting trend in the modern world, which is that we are much more interested in reality and fiction is kind of taking a bit of a backseat. And after I wrote this column, people were sending me uh, more interesting examples. And we were talking about The Crown and, you know, this kind of trend for TV dramas, which is actually pretty widespread, which isn't to just, you know, have a made-up story. It's to fictionalise the news. You get at the theatre, you know, the play about um, the England team that was on yeah, the yeah, theatre. Yeah, mm. Everywhere. As soon as you spot it, it's everywhere. Everything is, you know, the made-up original stories are declining and we are obsessed with either actual reality or lightly fictionalised so versions it's not of that it's reality. Because it's more, is, it, is it a flaw of ours rather than a flaw of fiction that we're so unimaginative now? It's like with the same with, um, you know, theatre shows and musicals. That nobody, you know, It's really hard to get something original off the ground. Yeah, I think that's definitely so true. So a sort of jukebox musical or something based on real events... Is, is the only thing that's I, I think that's definitely just something I should have said in my column action. I think especially for people like the theatre, well, for theatre and for Netflix, if you've got a real story that people already know and they're interested mm. in it because it really happened, you can get people through the door. There's another bit of a social change that contributes, which is that I think we're less reticent about invading people's publicity, less reticent about oversharing in public. So the crown couldn't have been made probably even 20 years ago because there was still was a kind of reverence around the yeah, royal yeah. family that mm. couldn't, couldn't have made it happen. A lot of the kind of Mem- the memoir boom that's happened recently in publishing, which is where a lot of their profits come from now, people just didn't share about their lives as much once upon a time. And that's something social media has, you know, got us used to. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm not saying this is like, you know, an earth-changing revelation, but I just think it is... <laughs> I just think it's so interesting it to spot interesting. it everywhere. I really... Uh, and it's so true. And it's just amazing this guy spotted this, you know, 13 years ago when the internet was just kicking off. And it's kind of rare that people have those insights that really turn out to be smart. So I was kind of props to him for, you know, noticing something interesting about what's going on. Right, now then, London has a new Lord Mayor, the city's 695th. That's how long it's been going on for. Uh, Well, the uh, new Lord Mayor is Michael Manelli and joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hello, and great to be here. Great to have you with us. So I suppose first question, how do you become the Lord Mayor of London? Well, interestingly, you get elected, um, and the election really consists of two parts. You have to be an alderman, uh, and therefore you need to have the workers and residents vote. That's what's uh, interesting about the square mile. We've had a workers' vote since the Middle Ages. And then secondly, you have to have the livery also uh, elect you. 
Uh, we have 50,000 liverymen associated with the city of London, uh, and they need to approve you. And if you can get those two communities together, you get a chance to be Lord Mayor for a year. And what do you get to do? What, what are the perks of the job? <laughs> I, I, I'm not too sure they're perks. It's a, it's a full-on job. In fact, I took last year off uh, to prepare for this year, and this year I've had to take completely off uh, because you're really up at 7 in the morning and you're going through to about 11.30. The biggest perk of the job is you get to meet fascinating and interesting people, not just here in London, uh, but also around the world. You have a travel schedule of approximately 100 days abroad, visiting about 25 countries. In fact, I'll be off to uh, COP tomorrow uh, in Dubai to promote green finance and the City of London's contribution to it. Um, James, have you uh, got ambitions to become a Lord Mayor of London? Yeah, I do now. Sounds well, great. Now, now it's democratically elected. Who knew? 650-odd years. Yeah, it doesn't sound like one of the. It doesn't sound like a democratically elected <laughs> position when you've got Lord in the title. Particularly when it comes, you know, we get the Lord Mayor show and you go through London reading like a gold coach and swear. Yeah, I'm well, know, up, I'm well up for that. What about you, India? Yeah, I quite like it. I quite like um, the necklaces. <clears throat> Are they called necklaces? No, chains <laughs> of office. <laughs> They're quite magnificent. It's a proper mayor, isn't it? You've got to have a chain to be a real mayor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you want a proper... When I think of a mayor, I think of like when I was at the Taunton Times and, um, you know, I used to go... Big hat, cover big, a, robes, big hat, chain. robes, chain, yeah. car. They used to have a car with a little flag on the front. Yeah, not impressed without any of that stuff. You no, know, the fact that Andy Burnham doesn't go around wearing a chain of office... Ridiculous. Means he's not think of the popularity you could have with a giant chain. Yeah, yeah. Now, the big thing I want to know about is why am I not allowed to drive sheep across London Bridge? Well, you could be allowed to drive sheep across London Bridge if you become a freeman. Uh, and we've had freemen in the city since approximately the 9th or 10th century. Uh, to become a freeman, you apply, pointing out your connections to the city of London. And if you're across the river, you've definitely got connections. So don't worry about that. Uh, having Would you fast track him? Yeah, can I? So what do I do? Do I have to fill in a form? Is it a lot of paperwork? No, it's, it's, a, it's about a two-page form. Uh, you do, we do check you out a little bit, uh, do a little bit of a background oh. check. After that, uh, the, the money goes to charity and... You oh, hang on. How much money? Percent. How much money are we talking? Oh, all right, all right. About £170. Um, <laughs> okay. But it does, it, does, it does all go to charity. It goes to our Freeman School for Education. And then once, you, once you've got that, uh, every September, you can drive your sheep across London Bridge at any time, but you have to get them to London Bridge. And I think the police won't let you. Our police will let you cross London Bridge. But every year in September, we have a great big sheep drive across the river. So if you get your application in quickly, you'll have qualified easily in a couple of months and you too can join us. Oh, right, right, okay, I'm definitely doing this. This has to happen. That's yeah. got to be worth it. 170 pounds, that's what, 10, 10, 10 tubes of biscuits, India? That's it. That's and right, it's for life. and I can lend you some sheep. India Knight and James Marrick, though, of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is only Sir Trevor MacDonald. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. ITN News at 10 with Trevor MacDonald. 
So Trevor McDonald retired from ITV News at 10 15 years ago, but he's still a legendary broadcaster and instantly recognisable. He was knighted for his services to journalism in 1999. More recently, he's presented a series of documentaries coming in from travel to the Caribbean to death row in America. Uh, but he's been on our screens in one way or another for, what, about more than half a century. <laughs> and I'm delighted that he joins me now. Hi, Trevor. Good to see you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, What's it like, I've talked about you being uh, retired, you've been doing lots of things in the meantime, what's it like being back in a in a newsroom? Do you Al- miss almost, the buzz of a newsroom? Almost frightening. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the buzz which you're so, you, you get so unaccustomed to. Um, but of course, it revives great memories. And um, it's something with which you were once so familiar with and and now it's a little it's a little strange and um observing people working is is um almost more difficult than working yourself really let's go right back to the very beginning then when did you first get the buzz for news and how did you break into it it's a very it's a very good question because i was born in trinidad which is a uh, um, island in the caribbean i think at about the time i was growing up and certainly almost by the time i left the population could not have been more than about a million. I've found that people who live in small communities like that, small countries like that, are not introspective by nature because you tend to look out on the world, much larger world out there. Much more specifically, I listened a lot to the World Service of the BBC and I heard all these correspondents traveling around the world, going to cities which I could only dream of in, in my imagination, and getting front seats at big international events, meeting world leaders. And I thought, you know, probably being well looked after in nice hotels and being paid to do this. And um, it did seem to me that this was not a bad way to earn a living. <laughs> of course, getting there was a little more difficult, but I was very lucky. I made some friends at the BBC when I came to cover a conference in London in the early 1960s. And I said to them, you know, quite idly, you know, if you ever have a job, you must give me a call. Somebody gave me a call. And um, I, I took about five seconds to say yes. <laughs> this was for the BBC World, World Service, Overseas Service. And I came to London to, to do that. But it satisfied all my dreams of working in in a larger pond. I worked in Trinidad for radio station and television had come in just before I left and I did the news occasionally and I had a discussion program called Dialogue. Um, so it was very much in my blood. Yeah. It was all I wanted to do. The only other thing I thought about it and I've constantly felt about it is that it was probably a great disappointment to my parents um, who never knew anything about journalism or even what it meant. And in the West Indies of my generation, you were supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. And that's it. Uh, um, I mean, being a journalist was the furthest thing from me. I mean, third was engineering and fourth was probably accounting. But all those were recognized, you know, as good, good things to get into. But certainly not, not journalism. So I think they were probably kind of really dis- disappointed. And the other thing was that in a curious way, because of our education, you were educated to go out of those islands. And I don't think that that reality dawned on your parents. My, my mother was always, you know, quite astonished about what I had decided to do to come to London. And I remember whenever I was in a very difficult place like Northern Ireland or Beirut, I would call her up and say, you know, try and, and tell her that, in fact, everything is fine and I'm in no danger. <laughs> there are no bombs, no guns, no course, Kalashnikovs. Nothing. And it's the most peaceful place on earth. And I'd say, and she said, where are you calling from? And I'd say, mum, I'm in Beirut. And she would always say, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I never found an answer. <laughs> I, never, I never could explain to her why. Uh, let's talk a little about you arriving then in, in the UK, late 60s. young black man arrives in the UK. Clearly, you know, some time on from Windrush and so on. But how did you find it, being travelling halfway across the world? I mean, the, the weather's clearly different. Uh, culturally, it <laughs> Never enjoyed different. the cold. <laughs> <laughs> You've never enjoyed the cold. But how did you find arriving in, in London? And did you experience any of the, the prejudice that the people who'd arrived in the sort of couple of decades before had done? Yes. Do you know, the one fortunate point about it was that I worked at Bush House in the BBC World Service. 
it was a United Nations of broadcasters. You thought there, working there, and you worked, you know, all hours of the day, you thought this was what London was like. Of course, when you went out into the Oldwich in the evening, you realized it was not like that. I don't remember being particularly discriminated against. Uh, you know, I was probably very lucky. I put my head down, did my work, and... Um, concentrated on being paid well enough to pay the mortgage um, and, 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 and that was it that was really. it yeah, yeah. yeah so then it's this year's 50 years since you then joined ITN which was obviously where you then became such a well-known figure but back then you were your first job was to go to Northern Ireland in the middle of the troubles and the question now being asked is whether there will be a power sharing executive in Northern Ireland by Christmas but with the smoke of car bombs going up all over Belfast and the thing that struck me when I was sort of reading around interviews and your autobiography and so on is that although you, quite rightly, as a broadcaster, very much adhere to the impartiality and just reporting the news in as straight away as possible, you don't like too much emoting and that sort of thing. And yet it seems like some of those big news events have stuck with you and some of the people you've interviewed and some of the events yeah. that you witnessed, and particularly the troubles. You never, you never forget them. And, you know, the emotions become very raw and you learn... A lot about yourself. As you say, you know, Northern Ireland was a terrible place um, to be in, in the 70s. I had never heard a bomb go off in my life. I couldn't spell the word Kalashnikov. And, and yet this is the atmosphere, you know, this is the, the, the place that one was working in. Uh, but, you know, you learned, you learned to cope. You know, in the end, I discovered that what we all wanted was some stability, some peace in Northern Ireland. And I remember the, the way we seized upon a peace movement, which, 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 we, you know, we all were, you know, yes, peace, peace, all wanted it. Of course, it never came to anything. And um, probably that some of the divisions are still as wide as they, they ever were. There's no government in Northern Ireland now. The, the devolved government is, 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 is not sitting. And so, you know, it's rather sad that things have not moved on, but it's quieter. And the killing has stopped to some extent, and that, that's nice. But it was a really, was a really frightening time. They bombed the hotel that we were staying in quite a few times. Just over two days now, there have been more than 20 bombs. Today, the terrorists managed to hit a primary target. Most people had been cleared from the hotel and the immediate vicinity. But never aimed at us. I think it was done to make sure that we were there to report what was happening. Um, that's why that hotel was chosen. It was the one the journalists yeah. stayed at. So yeah, you learn to cope. I'm I'm still astonished that I survived that because I hate violence. I don't like guns. I hate the sound of bombs. I discovered we used to stand outside the Europa Hotel, and when controlled explosions were about to be done, so you knew this was going to happen. You know, the army would you know do the controlled explosion, and I always remember at the sound of the explosion. I would always take off and run down, you know, although this was something you, you know, you'd seen and heard many times. I'm a coward. <laughs> well, you say that. For a coward, you did keep putting yourself or finding yourself in situations which weren't particularly safe, whether it was uh, interviewing Colonel Gaddafi, uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, Saddam Hussein. You, like you said, you were you reported from Kuwait. You were... Um, you know, in Beirut as well as Northern Ireland, you did keep finding yourselves in not very safe situations. But, uh, but Matt, you know, this is it's this this curious trade in, in, <laughs> that we we're involved in. Your your personality is put aside, and you concentrate on 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 doing the job. And I mean, it's even worse. You wanted to go to those places. I worked for a month talking to a diplomat, an Iraqi diplomat in in Tottenham Court Road to try and get the Saddam Hussein interview. So, you you know, you wanted to do it. I worked the same many hours to try to get to Gaddafi and, you know, Arafat and so on. And um, you put yourself in these positions, you know, you wanted to, to do it. Did you ever feel unsafe when you sit down with Gaddafi or, or Saddam Hussein? Did you feel personally unsafe being in such close proximity to men like that? I, I felt perpetually unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I suppose more so uh, was the, the Saddam Hussein experience because I discovered that, you know, there was much more 
to what what you read about and 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 what you saw the invasion of a neighboring country with such calculated force and brutality is a very un-arab thing to do isn't it hello انجليزي مثلا would it be an english thing then for instance if it's not an arab thing to do would it be a british way the iraqis are lovely people engaged in conversations quite easily once you mentioned the word saddam the conversation stopped they were scared even to talk about his name and when we came to do the interview extraordinarily we got into a car and the driver and the major who was sitting next to the driver bluntly refused to tell us where we were going i look back now on that and i think it's rather stupid to get into a car like that not knowing where you're going and then we turned up at this place on the way by the way i discovered that the driver the driver had no idea where we were going so he would turn up at these roundabouts and perceptibly slow down and the major would then tap on the dashboard and say second on the left and that's the way we knew and we turned up at this presidential palace and were greeted very warmly by a man about four o'clock in the afternoon and he came out smilingly and and said um what would you like for breakfast and you know how we have this tendency of believing that foreigners can't speak english properly so we have to correct them so i said you mean dinner he said no i mean breakfast <laughs> so i thought ah we're staying here the night and wow. it was a presidential palace and um we went in there and there the there's a lovely table for dinner and it's festooned with every variety of grape juice in the world and i thought if i'm to stay in a place like this not knowing where i am i would want something stronger than orange juice so i said to him would you mind awfully if i called up my hotel in in the middle of baghdad and got some whiskey sent in and he said no 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 and he said two things he said the cars which brought you are still outside i thought why are they hanging around and he said all we have to do is to reconnect the phones we cut the phones when you arrived i thought Trevor this is getting beyond stupidity you're in a place you have no idea where you are nobody has any idea where you are because these were the days before mobile phones my office has no idea where i am and um i have to beg it to get a, a drink of whiskey <laughs> i mean i thought it was all pretty pretty awful so curiously enough almost paradoxically really i learned more about iraq from what you observed in the surroundings when i came to interview the president there were about four or five of his ministers sitting around and they were crowding about crowding around my interview space and for the first time i kind of lost my temper and i said look i'm terribly sorry but you're getting in my way what are you guys doing here don't you have anything to do on a saturday evening and a guy took me outside the circle and said you don't understand what's going on here do you and i said of course i understand i come to interview a president and he said um we never see him asked questions which he's made to answer so there was no prime minister's question time or president's question time in iraq the mere fact of saddam hussein consenting to do an interview to answer questions was very very rare given all those people that you did interview it stopped me looking back through your interviews online and and reading about them it spent less time with british politicians lots of people i speak to on the show you know they've you know interviewing prime ministers and home secretaries and so on did that interest you less than you know your nelson mandela's and your gaddafi's it it probably did but i was also i deliberately chose to aim for the diplomatic correspondence job which quite naturally took you outside mm. of london i did have a lot of interaction with british politicians because there were the negotiations constantly about joining the EU common market as it then was and so I saw a lot of you know Edward Heath and Lord Carrington and and people like that but yes I chose to go abroad the other thing is I I never really understood why ITN employed me and I wanted to do everything that everybody else did there was a reporter called Michael Nicholson who was quite famous for going around the world and so on and i wanted to do things like that and and, and i still had that odd west indian view of looking out at the world and and wanting to see more of it um having come from such a sort of small community myself 
I wonder what you make of the way that the news business has changed. Actually, even just since you stopped doing wow. news at 10. The shift in the way people get their news and the way it's presented. I mean, the the bongs of you know the news at 10 were a sort of rallying cry for everyone to sit down, for families to sit down and watch the news because that's how you found out what was going on. I mean, exactly. At one stage, an ITV person said to me, we want to change the way you say goodnight. And I, I said, what, what do you mean? He said, because when you say goodnight, people switch their sets off and go to bed. So you, you're right. Today, well, you first of all, you're very lucky if they watch News at 10. And there are multiplicity of channels from which you can get your information and your news these days. And so it, it's very different. I think distinguishing what is really true and what is good news and what is not has become terribly, terribly difficult. I mean, even more so when you hear that some channels of information deliberately accentuate what they do in such a way as that you, you react to it and because they feel that that's a good way of getting people's reaction to what's going on. Yeah, I, I would find it very, very, very difficult. And I talk to my children and my, you know, I have two grandchildren and to listen to them and to see the way that they react to getting the news is entirely different from my time. It's entirely, it, it couldn't be more. There's clearly been a, a move further and further from the strict impartiality rules, which, have, you know, for such a long time it governed the yeah, BBC News yeah, and ITV News yeah. and so on. Uh, uh, Well-balanced, accurate, well-tested, you know, getting three or four sources before you broadcast anything. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realise this at the time. You refused to report the claim that London could be hit by weapons of mass destruction in 45 minutes because you weren't convinced about the veracity of it, which, given that was a story that ran and ran and ran and ran Yes, everywhere. yes. There was a United Nations investigating body which went out to Iraq and said Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. There was also, uh, you know, a rumour once that he was buying, getting uranium from Niger. There was a French ambassador at the United Nations who said to Colin Powell, who is then in, in the American government, he's not getting uranium from Niger. And Paul said, how do you know? He said, and the, the French, of course, had never left Niger, very rarely. And he said, we know everything that comes in and goes out of Niger. So I, f I felt that there was... There was never any ground for the, the basis that Saddam had were weapons of mass destruction. Even so, you know, we were sticking our necks out a little bit, but um, luckily it proved to be right. I don't think he had. I suppose it was a sign of your position as well that you were able to do that and lots of other... Yeah. Know, these days, the pressure to tweet everything and get yes, it on air know, and get it I online know. is so... It's, it's so different. It's, uh, you, you know, the other thing is, in a more physical way, you went on assignments and you got time to do it. I was in the Philippines... I was there for about a month, you know, during the Marcos thing. And by the end of that month, I really had begun to understand how the politics of that place worked. But today, you know, we dash in and dash out and um, the pressure of time and the pressure of changing events. And you have to try and make these conclusions very, very quickly. I, I had a little more time in the Middle East. I spent a long time there. And by about, you know, the fourth week or so, you began to understand a little bit of what is actually happening here. It takes time. Yeah. It took me time. I suppose actually taking time to get to know the story and then taking time to digest it as viewers. Yeah. Both, both those things are important. I wanted to ask you about the way that I know you've spoken about this before. You didn't want to become a sort of diversity champion. You wanted to get on and do your job and be judged by your journalism. Not become a poster boy for being a, a young black man in, in journalism. Do you think that was the right approach? Well, I don't know whether it was the right approach. It was mine. Mm. And I still stand by it. I, I said earlier that I was a little puzzled about ITN hiring me. I made one rule to myself, which was that I was not going to be the token black reporter. I was going to do everything that everybody else did, mm. which is why I ended up in, in Libya and in you know Morocco and in, in Beirut and so on. I wanted to be part of the whole and, and not to be exceptional in, in any way. But, you know, you can't escape the fact of who you are. And um, it was quite striking to some people that a black reporter was seen on the southern streets of, you know, Northern Ireland reporting the troubles. It was noticed. And, and sometimes it, it, it had odd, humorous things. One afternoon, I was with an Ulster television crew 
we were standing up doing a, a report on something and somebody came up and says, you know, you British, why don't you get out of here? And um, the crew said to me, I think they're talking about you. <laughs> so I thought, wow, I've, I've suddenly become... You've made it. I've, I've made it now. I'm, you know, in Northern Ireland, I'm, I'm British. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, there are odd instances like that. You know, it goes around, these things go around in cycles. This endless conversation about has multiculturalism worked, yes. integration and so on. Suella Brahman says that multiculturalism has, has failed. It has failed because it allowed people to come to our society and live parallel lives in it. How do you read that? I, I think we are, uh, for better or worse, a multicultural society. And, um, you know, I think in general, it's, it's wonderful to walk out in the streets of London and see people from all, all over the world. I think our society is immensely richer for it. And in any, in any case, you know, it's, it's the nature of the world these days. You, you remember many years ago coming into the office and my secretary said, if you turn on the television, you can see people rioting in Haiti. We are in touch with everything so, so much these days. You know, you know what's happening in America, debates about the coming presidential campaign. We, we see images of what's happening all over the world. We are in touch. We are part of the world now. It is now impossible to be so sort of on your own and not be influenced by what happens everywhere else. So, um, yeah, I think it's the way of the world these days. The other thing that happened to you, of course, is being in people's homes every night, you become a celebrity. <laughs> uh, from Trevor McDonough and Lenny Henry doing impressions of you to, yeah. <laughs> you know, suddenly you're show-busy, red-carpety things. Did you enjoy that aspect of, of fame, if you like? It given... was it was always a great shock to me. <laughs> I never knew about the Lenny Henry thing until much, much later. It was in the days, as I was saying earlier, before mobile telephones and I spent a lot of my time abroad and I remember hearing about it because whenever I called ITN from some faraway place the switchboard would say to me uh, have you seen this man who who does imitations of you and I said no I haven't seen and when I said that by the fifth time she said I will record it and make sure you have seen it they were to spend five days in Warsaw and Gdansk bless you thank you and now other news. The Pope today expressed his concern for his fellow countrymen. He asked for people to think of Poland in their prayers, and then he said, bless you. Good dance. <laughs> Thank you. That was Trevor McDonough. Then I thought, it's rather flattering that somebody should think that I have that status where I could be imitated. And it, it is. And then I got to know Lenny Henry, who I like enormously and, and who is a very clever man. But it, it was a very interesting was a very interesting thing the celebrity bit i i don't buy into that very much i set out on this journey to fulfill an ambition and to pay my way in the world and that's it really it's nice the time that people think that you've done a good job i like that you know when people refer to something i've done and said that was particularly well done and you know i like that that's is lovely thing somebody admires your work the celebrity bit i don't quite believe in <laughs> Do you think we're wrong to think that the world, right, not just British politics, but you look at American politics as well, is it worse than ever, as some people say, do you think? Or is it just that people always hark back to a glory day that didn't really yes. exist? I'm not sure. I mean, there were glory days. I, I think you tend to have rose-tinted mm. spectacles about things that you were involved in and you feel that things, you know, which happened earlier were, were, were different. You know, the problems remain... I must confess, I was a little surprised to hear some of the stuff during the COVID inquiry about, you know, how some of these decisions were made. But I suppose it was the same. I'm surprised at the fact that Donald Trump in America is still, after all the years, uh, you know, what we knew about his, his character and so on. And things he said about himself, he said, mm. you know, I can walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and still get elected. So... At least he's admitted that to himself. But I, I'm sometimes amazed that somebody like that could still be running for high office. But otherwise, I think it's plus a change, really. <laughs> How do you feel if you, when you hear the bongs, and if you're watching 10 o'clock news or you hear Big Ben go off, do you still get the twinge? <laughs> no, I, I don't. <laughs> I was in Australia some years ago, and um, there was a programme or uh, some which had the same bongs as we did. And I, I was at the, in, entered this hotel, and I turned television on and heard them. And I did sort of jump on us, <laughs> thinking I, I should be somewhere else. There's no escape. But, but otherwise, <laughs> no, I, those days are gone. I feel like as you're here, I need to end by saying, and finally, 
Trevor McDonald, when you're looking back on your career, you talked about the ambition you had when you set off and you thought you wanted to, you know, stay in the great hotels and meet the great people and travel the world. Is there a moment when you think, that was when I fulfilled that ambition as a young man leaving Trinidad? Yes, I mean, there, there are bits that I still, you know, look back on and think, yeah, I was glad I did that. I did the first interview with Mandela when he came out of prison. We are ready for honourable compromises without uh, surrendering our principles. Even on a question like one man, one vote, possible compromise? Compromises must be made in respect to every issue. I still look back on that because he was such an extraordinary man who thought that everything was possible if you sit down and talk seriously and are prepared to compromise. An extraordinary mm. admission, you know, for somebody to make and could be applied today. But curiously enough, when you talk about the news at 10, that ITV executive who came to me and said, we have to change your goodbye, the nature of your goodbye, um, because when you say goodnight, people switch off their televisions and go to bed. And I thought, I never knew I had that power. <laughs> Incidentally, it ended with a very strange business because I would then say, he said, you have to trail the programs which are coming later on. So I would say, and that's news at 10 tonight, good night, but coming up next on ITV, and the program was Bad Girls. <laughs> and um, I had some friends who said, you know, Trevor, we missed the news last night, but we always switch on for you to hear you say bad girls. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the nature of, of um, I, I frequently think of my career like that. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Trevor McDonald. Good night. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget a lovely bit of weekend listening if you haven't already caught up. How to win an election. Peter Manson, Daniel Finkstein and Polly McKenzie taking a look at how you deal with your rebels. Do you hug them close or try to bury them? That's available wherever you're listening to this. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection, to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With Acast Podcast Ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one -on -one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym, or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.